Hi, I'm Gabby. Welcome to the Happier Life Project, brought to you by the free award-winning mental health and wellness app, My Possible Self. If you're listening to this episode in January around the time of its release, it's a period in the year where most diet plans kick off as a result of indulging over the Christmas period. Last week on the show, we talked about the importance of maintaining a healthy approach to movement and avoiding anything too punishing and extreme. And today we are taking a similar approach with food and nutrition. Like exercise, eating well is fundamental to our overall health. But just like when you obsessively exercise, when you obsessively try to eat healthily and maybe over-eliminate certain foods and food groups, you could actually be doing way more harm than good. And this is why for the next two episodes, we are going to learn all about orthorexia. Orthorexia wasn't a word I'd even heard of until last year. Put simply, orthorexia is a term that describes an obsession with eating healthy food. It comes from the Greek words ortho, meaning correct, and orexis, meaning appetite. A person with orthorexia is fixated with the quality, rather than quantity, of their food to an excessive degree. Orthorexia can start with healthy or clean eating, then progress quickly to the elimination of entire food groups, such as dairy or grains, and then to the avoidance of foods such as those with artificial additives, foods treated with pesticides, or particular ingredients, for example fat, sugar or salt. In our current culture, cutting out entire food groups like sugar, fats, carbohydrates and dairy are commended and here lies a dangerous problem, exasperated by the abundance of content creators that promote a healthy life by very unhealthy means. Today, we welcome back Rini McGregor, a leading sports and eating disorder specialist dietitian with 20 years experience working in clinical and performance nutrition. Rini works with individuals, athletes of all levels and ages, coaches and sports science teams to provide nutritional strategies to enhance sport performance, manage eating disorders and overtraining. Rini is also a best-selling author and it was her book, Orthorexia, When Healthy Eating Goes Bad, that really helped me get my head somewhat around this complex way of disordered eating. And as you listen to our conversation, which we have split into two parts, there may be many of you that know someone or you yourself may be leaning towards some orthorexic tendencies. And like me, you might have some aha moments where you realize that you've actually been brainwashed into believing certain food myths when it comes to making food choices without knowing if this information has come from a credible source or not. So, ready to find a healthier, happier you? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Happier Life Project, Rini McGregor. So far in this podcast, uh, not just the new series, but as a whole, 
We've covered topics on food and how it can affect your mood and why it's so important to eat well for not just our physical health, but our mental health as well. So this is kind of a, an interesting sidestep from that in terms of when healthy eating goes too far and can actually be really harmful and detrimental to both your mental and physical health. I'd like to start with the the term orthorexia because I confess I hadn't actually heard of it until I knew about your work. And I think many people might be like me. So if we could start there, if you wouldn't mind um, giving a little synopsis on what exactly is orthorexia. Sure. I mean, orthorexia, by definition, is the obsession with eating purely, with eating correctly. That's kind of what it is by obsession. Right now, it's not technically known as a diagnostic eating disorder, although that is something that has changed just this year in that I've been involved as part of the uh, International Task Force on Orthorexia. And for the last four or five years, we've been working on diagnostic criteria to make it something that can then be added to the manual of diagnostic criteria for all mental illness and mental health and then obviously medical practitioners have that at their fingertips to be able to kind of go oh okay this is what this is so mm. as it stands orthorexia is a kind of the, we used to think it was like a sub set of anorexia but now we know it's not it's basically a sort of type of eating disorder that stands alone in its own right it has a number of overlaps with obsessive compulsive disorder and anorexia but fundamentally it is like I said that obsession with getting it right it's uh, the need to be overly health conscious is is probably a good way of talking about it yeah and being overly health conscious it's really sad actually you become so fixated on healthy eating that you're actually becoming incredibly unhealthy so what is the switch where it, you know, we all know we should eat vegetables, we need protein, we need carbs, but like, when does it become such an obsession that something just flicks? I know elimination is a big part of this, and that's from reading your book. I guess it, it can present in a number of different ways. So I think like it's important to probably explain that because it's not just a one size fits all, like with all eating disorders, it's not, you know, mm. it happens because of X. What I have seen in my work and practice and in research that I've done in this area is that sometimes it comes from a place of health anxiety. So, for example, we've had a number of clients where there has been severe illness within the family and that has then the anxiety around the trauma associated with that illness mm -hmm. has then led to these very dysfunctional behaviours. So on the face of it, it looks like you are doing all the right things to prevent yourself from becoming unwell and, and fighting against this particular disease, should we say. Mm -hmm. But actually, it becomes so obsessional that you then don't realize that you're affecting other areas within your body that are going to cause you more biological harm at that point. So, mm -hmm. so that it can start from that. It can also stem from an aspect of identity. The term orthorexia came about several years ago when the eat clean movement, you know, hashtag eat clean was very, very rife. And 
to this day, I still couldn't tell you what it means to eat clean. I still don't really understand what that is. But again, we see it a lot, particularly with people who have that added interest in fitness. And I'm going to say fitness rather than sport, because I think it is more of a fitness industry focus. But it does affect athletes. There's no doubt about it. But we now have a different terminology for athletes who have disordered eating and that's known as REDS and that's kind of similar, but, but separate, but for orthorexia, particularly, we definitely see it in the health industry. You know, you, you can't help, but see influencers and even a lot of yogis, you know, sort of well-known yogis promoting mm. certain types of eating, you know, detox smoothies and all this kind of information that then, informs those of us that are vulnerable and maybe fear that we're getting it wrong or we fear that our bodies are going to you know be affected by these so-called toxins and then we become obsessional in what we choose to eat so as with all eating disorders it's not really ever about the food it's usually about a much more complicated reason that's going on underneath but Mm. food is obviously the focus and and with orthorexia you don't you don't usually see those sort of negative consequences of weight reduction. So you, people don't tend to lose weight with orthorexia. So with anorexia, we know that there's a big aspect of losing weight and maintaining your weight at a level that is not acceptable for the human body to function. And there's a big aspect of that. But with orthorexia, it's much more about the food ingredients you know there's a real obsession with getting that right and to the point where then it becomes so all-encompassing that it can start to affect your you know your day-to-day life yeah I know from again reading your book and like you just touched upon it's not necessarily about losing weight but then I can't help but think for some people maybe is because it gives them a a template, if you will, for restriction. I actually mentioned this on the last episode we recorded together about a friend of mine that pretended she was glucose intolerant and dairy intolerant. And then she confessed years later, it actually wasn't, but it was just her way of having an excuse to not consume food that's got glucose in it, food that's got dairy in it, because she's always been, I always think, borderline disordered eating. And I can't help but think in some cases that 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 is the case too that you know tell me if I'm wrong I think the thing is I think again we have to be really careful because we have to go back a step and ask well why is our physical appearance so important it's not even necessary about finding a way to lose weight it goes back to finding a way to feel better right there's there's a there's a much deeper rooted anxiety about falling short not meeting expectations not being good enough in the world we live in, feeling the sense of unworthiness, that that's the driving factor in all these behaviours. And we go in search of something that's going to help us to fundamentally, we think, feel better. Because if we do these, if we follow these behaviours, if we, you know, we eat in a certain way, if we remove certain food groups that other people are suggesting that they did and it completely altered their life and suddenly Mm -hmm. they felt amazing we're looking on the information that's being provided out there for us because we're also looking for that kind of that promise if we do this then everything's going into place and my life is going to be perfect and I'm going to be able to live it to the fullest that's the kind of that's the thing about 
I think that's the thing about wellness, and this is where a lot of orthorexia comes from, is that the wellness industry, which is very different to well-being, and I want to make that really clear, but the wellness industry has a big part to play in this because mm-hmm. the wellness industry is constantly fueling this. It's constantly you know, providing us with information that then informs us that we're getting it wrong, we're not doing enough. So it almost perpetuates the cycle. We've got this already feeling of, we don't quite fit in. There's something wrong with us. We're not achieving enough. We've all got that living in the mm-hmm. modern world. And then we have this wellness industry, which so-called wellness makes us think that that's all we should be striving for in order to have our health, to have that glowing skin, to have the shiny hair, to have all the aspects of being a human that have been promoted as being important. That have value. And yet fundamentally, you can change all you want. You can go and, you know, go on a gluten free diet. You can go on a sugar free diet. You can do whatever you want to do. You can even achieve the physique that you might associate with being perfect. But I doubt it will make you happy because mm-hmm. it's not about that. Sorry to cut you off earlier, but I think Sorry. it's really important to help people to realize that all human behavior has a purpose and disordered eating and dysfunctional behaviors around food, there's a purpose behind it. And often we will mask it with, oh, I just want to be healthier or I want to lose a few kilos. Or if you then take another step back, for most people, the reality will be, I don't feel good enough, which is why I need to change myself. And that's where the root of the issue is. I guess with the weight thing, I sort of came to that conclusion. I mean, there is this association with if you're thin, thin and healthiness, right? So I I remember listening to, it was a talk, a live talk, and he was, I'm sure, like a sports nutritionalist. And he said, stats are, I've got them somewhere in my notes, but basically that women should have, or a healthy body fat to have is like, he said sort of around 20 to 25 because he was talking to people that were into fitness. I think perhaps it's maybe a bit more than that, but he basically was saying, and this is just taking women for this example, that most women aren't happy to have around that body fat and they actually want to be thinner. He said, but actually if you're in a healthy range, then you should have, you know, we the way we are physically built is to carry some um, body fat but actually anything less you're not getting healthier you're getting thinner but it's purely for aesthetic purposes that always stuck with me because it kind of you know surprised me actually and so I guess that's why I'm sort of thinking when it's like well I'm being healthy if I'm thin I'm being healthy Um, I think the problem is again is because society is promoting this imagery if you look at those women who are sub 20% body fat Mm -hmm. is the imagery that is being pushed out constantly that this we all need to look like only if you look like this are you going to be acceptable and yet it's not normal he's absolutely right the normal range for women is actually 21% up to 32% depending on your age because as you get older actually that that range increases because again our bodies change as we get older and that's Mm. the other thing that I think I find fascinating is I've worked with a lot of older women recently 
you know, women going through perimenopause and intermenopause who have absolutely developed orthorexia almost as a result of the transition they're going through because their body is changing and it will change because hormones influence our body composition. Hormones influence, you know, our mood and how we eat and what we're able to do from a physical point of view in terms of exercise and, you know, and lifestyle. And it's a big transition phase. And it's not to say that it's a permanent thing. Like it can, obviously, we've got all sorts of strategies now to support women through this really important part of their life. And, and you know, for most women, you're going to hit menopause around 50 51 you've still got a massive amount of time left you know in, in today's like life where we have higher life expectancy you've probably got another 20 25 years if not more so it's important to understand that this is another phase of your life but what i've noticed is that women almost want to maintain where they were in their 20s and their 30s but that's not realistic. So again, mm -hmm. we go back to the imagery and the information we are putting out there is not realistic. I mean, you know, we've got, while some people may call her a role model, I would not, but, you know, someone like Davina McCall, who is this, talking about- <laughs> I've got yeah. her in my notes to ask you about. That's funny, you use her as an example. Carry yeah, on, sorry. Talking about- menopause and her experience and, and all those different things it's incredibly clear to anybody who is medical that she has orthorexia that she has real issues with food she's trying to maintain a physique that is not acceptable or not really real not even acceptable not realistic for her age right no. you've got all these women in their 50s looking at going oh my god she's amazing and now we've all got to try and achieve that gold standard well no you know? Right. It's that's so interesting because I was going to ask you about her. She's done a book on eliminating sugar. And she said, in fact, I might as well go to it since we're sort of on this subject. But I've got a quote from her because she she does struggle with addiction. She's been very open in the past about with drugs and with, with alcohol. She said that she was a sugar addict, which I think, you know, many of us could could say that about ourselves. But in this article, which it was taken from the BBC where they're calling her a fitness guru. Um, she said, when my sister got cancer, the nutritionalist told me that she should give up sugar. And I found that quite telling. I did some research and realized I was a slave to it. We need a certain amount of carbohydrates, but we don't need added sugar. Uh, stop eating it and you may stop mood swings, bad skin and weight gain. Sugar free to me means a diet free of refined sugar, like things like processed foods and white flowers rice and bread packet sugar too her book's called five weeks to sugar free yeah and those are exactly the rules you would have if you're orthorexic so mm. you know and also she, okay she's got an addictive personality but what about her addiction to exercise then she's not yeah. tackling that is she i think mm. this thing we it's very clear to me that Davina McCall has a number of problems, right? She she has admitted to having eating disorders in the past. She's admitted to alcoholism. That's a personality type. That wow. woman needs therapy to understand her awareness of herself and to appreciate that she has a very addictive personality, but you can't pick and choose what you're addicted to. 
You have to look at the whole picture. And this is why it terrifies me when we have spokespeople who are celebrities, who have no scientific background, who have no knowledge of what they're doing. And also she goes, I, you know, I did the research. She will have gone in search. She would have cherry picked the evidence to go in search of trying to elevate her book. But it really worries me because, you know, it's not just her. I mean, you know, we've used her as an example. There are many, many, many celebrities out there all doing the same thing. But fundamentally, one of the most important things I find when I'm working with anybody is helping them to realize the purpose of their behaviors. Like we go back to that kind of thing. If you understand what the purpose of your behavior is and the majority of the time, the purpose of any behavior is protection. Protection from, you know, like I said, not feeling like you're achieving, not feeling like you're hitting an ideal, whatever it might be. Maybe something happened in your younger years that has informed you that to get approval, you have to, you know, attain a certain body type, you have to attain a number of achievements. Like we we all know yeah. those people. And I think so when you understand the purpose of your behavior when you start to go oh okay I understand this and then you start to look at that younger version of you where this has probably come from Mm. you do the work you do the therapy you start to be able to turn up for that younger version and show them more compassion and care only then can you get total embodiment and only then can you let go of these behaviors around food and exercise so you know the, the problem with fixating on food as being the solution is that often this happens when people are totally disconnected from their body that their mind and body are separate and that's definitely something mm-hmm. that is very clear again with Davina McCall you know like mm. she's not putting she hasn't got total embodiment she's always projecting onto her body always every mm. every single behavior you see every article you read she's always in a bikini she's always showing off her abs and okay fine she's proud of it but not once has she stopped to maybe consider how that might be impacting the hundreds of women that look at those images and think that's not realistic for me but actually is suggesting a standard that we should all be trying to achieve these are the things that and this is the problem with wellness is that you have these gurus as you put it who are yeah. being well the BBC honest. put it <laughs> I, I I'm a yogi so I would consider a, a guru to be very different to Davina McCall and again we're just using her as an example <laughs> she seems like a nice lady but wow I mean you I've just been very silent because I'm just literally absorbing everything you're saying going flipping heck yeah because I I do look at those bikini pictures of Davina and think my God, she looks amazing. and But then also, I, w- I would never be able to achieve that. She must be really restricting herself and in the gym 24-7. A part of orthorexia can be obsession with working out as well. So I know that you obviously work with a lot of professional athletes. How much exercise is too much exercise for the average person that isn't, you know, Athlete. doesn't have a career in sport? I think it's a really important question, actually, because it's something I've addressed quite a lot over the last few weeks. I've been doing a lot of talks around the country, and it's one of the things we've been chatting about a lot is that we have professional athletes for a reason, right? They are professional athletes. They are paid to be athletes. That is their job. So understandably, they probably do train four or five hours a day. 
right? I work with ballet. They train, especially right now when we're going into the Christmas season, they will be training. They will be, I say training, they don't like the term training. Ballet dancers like the term. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, okay. Rehearsing, rehearsing. They will be yeah. rehearsing. Their workload will be high, but they will be, you know, they will be rehearsing eight hours a day, right? Mm-hmm. So they are, but that that is their job. But equally, they also have a wraparound service. They have a dietitian. They have a physio. They have a sports therapist. They have a SNC coach. You know, we have a doctor. Everybody is looked after. Everybody, we know that this is a particularly intense period of time over Christmas because there's not lots of performances going on. But then they get downtime. They get four weeks off. They get two weeks off. And that's the same in any professional sport. They'll often have key international meets that they have to attend and and compete at but then in between they will have downtime and that's very very normal but what I've seen happen over the last few years is that the everyday athlete if we call them that have become more and more obsessed with following the same um, protocol as these professional and elite level athletes so everybody now seems to have a coach and everybody now is not happy with just doing an hour of training a day it feels like you have to do two hours of training a day you know you have to do your run in the morning and you have to do your weights in the evening or you have to every opportunity you have people are waking up at 4 a.m to fit a run in before they go to work like none of this is healthy None of this is healthy and and so I said to answer your question it's a difficult question to answer because obviously everybody is a bit different and their lifestyle will be different and their work will be different. If you have a very, you know, a heavy work schedule in that you're a builder or you're a postman or you're a nurse, you know, you're someone who's on their feet quite a lot, then actually for you, it might actually only doing something three or four times a week might be enough in order, you know, in order to kind of keep you healthy. If you are somebody who is sedentary, maybe working at an office most of the time, then yeah, for you, maybe doing something on a daily basis is going to be useful in terms of health metrics and and mental health. But that doesn't still mean you have to fit in two, three, four hours a day. Like we're talking about right. Right? It like, doesn't have to be aggressive either, right? It could be, it could alternate. It could be a hit one day, but then yoga the next day. It doesn't need to be like... Totally. And that's shred, not- shred, shred, shred. Yeah. And that, and to be fair, Gabby, that's exactly what we want. You, you, what we want is people to have a balance and to have variation. So it's not okay to do hit every single day. That's all that's going to do is put your nervous system, central nervous system under huge amounts of stress and fatigue. And fundamentally, eventually that is going to have biological consequences. You know, it's going to cause your cortisol, your stress hormone to be chronically high, which then has a negative impact on both our body composition, our metabolism of carbohydrates and fats. And generally speaking, just that general constant feeling of fight, flight, freeze, because that's what stress hormones do, right? So mm. the ideal is that, yeah, you know, you if you even if you do do something every day, maybe like you're saying, some days it is a a hit session, the next day it's yoga, the day after that is a hike, you know, with some friends, it's sociable. For me, exercise in most people who are not elite professional athletes, there needs to be an element of just participation and social connection, because that is really important for our well-being. And so again, when it becomes something obsessional, where you are getting up at 4.30 in the morning to be able to fit it in before you go to work, or you are missing out on, you know, Friday night drinks with your work colleagues again, because you want to go to the gym, 
you know every now and again it's fine to do that if you make that like something you need but if you're doing it again yeah then that is that is going to have an impact and I think the biggest piece of the puzzle with all of this is health health is so much more than what we eat and what we do for exercise and yet if you look at Instagram that's what you'll think health is you'll think Mm. health is about what we look like what we eat and how much we exercise and actually the biggest component of health is social connection because if we don't have social connection we we don't have healthy minds we don't have like you look at any research on depression you look on any research on mental health problems mm. and the biggest biggest feature in all of those is the lack of social connection the lack of feeling like they're contributing or belonging to a sense of community and actually if you change that up with a lot of people you know hence why so many community hubs and charities that are offering that social connection or a place where people can come and do something you know I read this morning about a charity that has like opened up a kitchen for people to come and just provide some support in terms of cooking and then the food goes to help those that are homeless like that is a sense of community but also a sense of contributing and you get the social element and that has really impacted people's mental well-being and so I do think people need to realize that health is so much more than just the physical it is mm. that mind and physical is so important. I'm so glad you, you said that. And, and I'm going to take that thread and run with it because um, what we decided to do really was to put this episode out in the early January. Um, and I've got a, another episode with a mental health PT because we we sort of talked about it. And I don't know how you, you feel about this, but I think that like, and I've said it before on different episodes of the podcast, it seems that like, December is just this time where we get a golden ticket for indulgence, right? And we can, like, we talk about sociable, we're doing every, you know, parties and dinners and foods and Christmas and, you know, Thanksgiving, if we go a bit further back and to not neglect our US uh, listeners. But then January is the time for restriction. And it's almost like we've got to punish ourselves for what we've done for the weeks leading up to January. And, you know, we all know it's the most depressing time of the year. And I think to many, they would agree with that because we're skin, but then we're also bombarded going back to social media with this like, okay, dry January, restrict, 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 new year, new you, all of that kind of thing. So this must be like a breeding ground for people who have orthorexic tendencies or, you know, to be receiving these kind of messages or not even tendencies, but just perhaps there's something bubbling away and this just could be the catalyst to take them down what they think is a healthy plan, where actually the results could be quite detrimental. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm, as you can probably imagine, I really loathe that time of year not not because it's January actually January is my birthday month so I'm usually quite happy but um it is a difficult time of year we've just had all the festivities you know there's been lack of routine for most of us we've taken time off work we've caught up with friends and family um I think it's interesting you brought up the kind of the the decadence of eating but again that's only something we have all normalized and I'm yeah. not it's saying that we shouldn't go and enjoy ourselves. I think, you know, again, food is central. But if we think about Christmas in general, Christmas is, you know, probably a week 
of December, all in all, by the time you've kind of gone to your in-laws and then you've gone to your family and then you've gone to your friends or whatever, you know, mm. it's at your work and the thing. So yeah, it's, 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 there's a time there where food is going to be maybe a little bit more abundant, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change your approach to eating like you know you can eat differently so absolutely you maybe the food is different and maybe it is a little bit richer but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad for you but I feel like we again we create society creates this more 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 which then we all follow only then to set ourselves up to fail in January because then we get to January and we all feel a little bit sluggish. We all feel a little bit like uncomfortable, you know, the, the jeans are that little bit tighter or whatever it might be. Um, And then we go in these massive, right, that's it. I'm going to completely stop now and I'm not going to snack and I'm not going to drink and I'm going to go and do to the gym every single day. And, and it's really difficult to maintain these behaviors. And so we almost self-sabotage it. And actually Mm. just a little bit more gentle with ourselves through December and January and actually just appreciate that yeah routine does go in December a little bit but if we go back to routine in January most likely everything will fall back into place again we don't have to be super restrictive and super unkind to ourselves because as you said it's a really really dark time of year like literally dark. literally and- yeah and it is like the celebrations are over and there's not an awful lot to look forward to at that point in time. So that, again, mm. sort of falls into that. So I think it is definitely a time where it's important not to become overly restrictive. And it's such a time to be gentle with yourself rather than a time to be too punishing. Over the years, that's the message I have tried to put out there as much as possible in January is let's just go slow. Let's just take it easy let's just be kind. Because again, it's that compassion. If you respect your body, and this is a really important thing, if you respect and nourish your body appropriately, it will work so much better for you instead of beating it up. Hello, it's Gabby back with you. Thank you to Rini McGregor. That was part one of our conversation. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast and you listen on one of the podcast platforms, please do so that when episode two comes out, it will land in your inbox as soon as it is available to listen to. And now for the important housekeeping. If you are suffering with your mental health, there is a crisis button on the My Possible Self app which will signpost you to the correct information for immediate expert advice. Those of you who are listening on one of the podcast platforms, the My Possible Self app is completely free to download, so you don't need to worry about it costing you anything. If you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the interviewer, which is me, and the interviewees. The content of this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a substitute for professional or medical advice. The Priory Healthcare are not involved in the production or content of this podcast. If you're not already following us on social media, we are at My Possible Self. 
and I've been at Radio Gabby. And to follow Rini on Instagram, she is R underscore McGregor, spelt M-C-G-R-E-G-O-R. And her website is rinimcgregor.com. Do take care and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now.